Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. In today's show, we're discussing Friedrich Nietzsche's On the Uses and Disadvantages of History for Life from the Untimely Meditations. First published in 1874, the essay concerns the purpose of history. History not just in the sense of the past per se, but also in the sense of how we study and think about the past. Although Nietzsche accepts modernity's claim that we are all at bottom historical creatures, he vehemently rejects the notion that history completely exhausts what we are, and most importantly, that it necessarily determines what sort of beings we might become. Putting history in the service of life means transmuting the past in an effort to create oneself, to body forth something new, in Zarathustra's words, to give birth to a dancing star. As we will see, for Nietzsche this requires us to become untimely, and it's in exploring this notion of the untimely that our discussion will touch on the weird. But before that happens, a quick note of appreciation for our Patreon Ubermenschen. Thanks to you, and I'm delighted to say that there are over a hundred of you now, Phil and I can invest more time and energy into doing our show. In fact, our thanks goes to all the listeners who tune in regularly to listen to our rambles, whether they're patrons or not. If you're not, check out our Patreon page to find out the perks of becoming a patron. And never hesitate to write us with your questions, ideas, and stories. Our email address is admin at weirdstudies.com. Okay, on with episode 49, Out of Time, Nietzsche on History. We hope you enjoy the conversation. First time we talk about Nietzsche, isn't it? Like that we it devote is. an episode to him. Yeah. Yeah. And we're choosing a very early, in some ways, uncharacteristic piece to do it. Well, not, not as early as Birth of Tragedy, but uh, definitely a mid-career kind of thing. Or early, like late early career, I'd say. <laughs> he right? didn't have the longest career, so. A, I know, but if you're going to split it in, into phases, I mean, <laughs> this is. But it, but it doesn't have the epigrammatic quality that we associate with like, you know, Twilight of the Idols or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's prolix and a little repetitive. It's, uh, it's a longish essay. I mean, I'm not saying that like it's necessarily a bad thing, but. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same epigrammatic brevity of his later stuff. I know his late a lot of his later stuff he wrote um, while quite ill, and he was actually physically unable to write for a very long period of time. So he forced himself to develop that epigrammatic style, wow, just to be able that. to write at all. And he also, in one of the late works, he comments. He says something like, "Most philosophers write their thinking and not their thoughts, or something like that." Basically, you can see a philosopher thinking in most philosophical texts, whereas mm-hmm. he thought a true philosopher should write the thought 
and then everything should flow out from the final thought. Um, mm. And uh, in this, I find you can see him thinking, you can see him becoming, I mean, for me, on the, the essay we're discussing uh, on the uses and disadvantages of history for life is from a, a four essay volume he wrote, uh, finished writing in 70, 1876 called Untimely Meditations. It's probably my favorite of Nietzsche's books. And that's why I was saying it was more of a mid thing for me, because to me, that's the fulcrum between the early Nietzsche of Birth of Tragedy and then the Nietzsche we get with uh, Daybreak and Gay Science and all the later stuff. I mean, it's, I guess it's up for debate whether Nietzsche's career can be seen as a, an evolution or a, 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 a kind of devolution, de-evolution into, into, into madness. <laughs> but, you know, I guess you could argue it both ways. But I find in this book, he's right in the middle. He's in a, a good space, I find, in terms of the value of the, the ideas themselves and the clarity of the arguments. There's some surprising stuff in here. Like, he defends Christianity. Um, I know. I didn't uh, see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. This is the first piece of Nietzsche I ever wrote, uh, that I ever read. Really? And yeah. Uh, and I read it about t- 25 years ago. And we can get into this, but it actually had a huge influence on me. Mm. I didn't really know much about Nietzsche. And so, you know, the stuff about Christianity didn't strike me as very strange. Now, reading it again for the first time in 25 years, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's surprising. Right, right. But I, I don't think there was as much... I mean, he never disowned these writings. In fact, this is a vague memory I have of reading something about how he... he, he I mean, towards the end of his career, he still saw Birth of Tragedy as perfectly valid as a book. And that was his first book. So I think that what happens with Nietzsche is that as he gets older and more... And as he notices that people are basically able to completely ignore him, he gets more and more resentful. I don't want to put it negatively. Um he gets more and more desperate to make a point and he, he resorts to a kind of polemical style towards the end. And that may give the impression that he's changed his mind on certain things, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think he's just, it's, it's a, there's a style evolution, but the thought, the, the central intuition for me, I mean, between birth and tragedy and twilight of the idols, I don't see, or antichrist for that matter. I don't see a change in the central intuition, which is that, what matters in life is your own individual existence, and you need to find your path. You need to find your way. You need to become your own bridge to your own Ubermensch or whatever. And that it's own that the purpose of a culture, the purpose of history, the purpose of a people is to produce the individual, is to serve the individual. I think that's basically one of the central ideas in Nietzsche, and that's true from from his writings about Dionysus and, and the birth of tragedy, all the way to Antichrist. And I think that's the strongest argument anyone can have against accusations that Nietzsche is a right-wing extremist or a proto-Nazi or all that stuff, even, mm. though, even though his work did play a part in the development of these unfortunate realities of the 20th century. Right. Um, but yeah, anyways, this piece, I, it's so funny because I, I don't know why I, propose, I suggested we do that one, that essay. I think you'd mentioned it before, maybe. I really like that essay. I, I, I'm really glad we did it. But the, the one that kind of floored me when I was about the same age as you were when you read Uses and, uh, and Disadvantages of History for Life was uh, Schopenhauer's Educator, which I think is a fantastic text. I mean, have, did you read that one? Nope, never oh, did. so good. And we could do another show on that sometime. It's, it's really about the purpose of culture and the way he sees it is as the, the purpose of a, a healthy culture is a culture that gives birth to, to real individuals. 
And um, his three exemplars are in that essay are the saint, the artist, and the philosopher. So the inclusion of a saint is kind of interesting. Hey, hold on for a sec. I just want to swap out chairs. I realize I'm sitting in the squeaky chair. Sure. This will make life much easier in the editing. Sure, no problem. There you go, vaping again. Did you see that comment you, on Twitter, that question? You, yeah, you got busted. <laughs> I thought I was catching most of them, but it's because... I know, me too. I was yeah. so surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I don't vape that much, but anyways. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. That comment was clearly directed at our listeners. I'm not some degenerate nicotine freak. I don't think I vape that much during the show because I also have I'm also I also have snooze, which is a Swedish You're oral tobacco. Vaping like vaping like a motherfucker. And snoozing because snoozing I don't like a motherfucker. Because I don't want to vape too much. And our Swedish listeners will know what snooze is. It's this wonderful product that I've been using in situations where I can't uh vape too much. In fact I shouldn't vape at all when we're recording, but I just can't help it. So so, so live with it. Live with it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I assume that uh, I, I assume that we owe something of uh, the effervescence of your your vocal pro- performance to to nicotine. Oh, you def- well, you owe my the fact that I'm awake right now to nicotine. <laughs> the, the you know, but wouldn't it be cool if I was actually chain smoking like camels? During every recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be old school. Yeah, that'd be kind of awesome. But at this point, I'm not going to go back to that. Um, yeah, so uh, where shall we start with this? I mean, it's, well, it's a big text. Actually, I got a couple of sort of prefatory remarks. And one is something that you've sort of alluded to, which is this image that Nietzsche has. And the unfortunate association of his philosophy with Nazism, for example. And uh, I am no Nietzsche scholar, but one thing I have read is that much of what we think we know about Nietzsche and also a lot of early editions of his work, early 20th century German editions of his work that were the ones that Nazis, German right-wingers were fascinated with were edited by his sister who really was a fascist mm-hmm. and she posthumously edited him and kind of curated his image in such a way as to make him seem like her, which is to say a pro-German bigot. Right. And when I was in graduate school, the reading German, first reading German class I took was with an elderly German professor who was a Nietzsche scholar who talked about this constantly. I was furious about how... I mean, for him, Nietzsche represented exactly what you just described, like for him, a very healthy and life-giving view of philosophy or idea of what philosophy is for and what what it can mean in in a human life. And uh, he just found it very sad that people had a ready-made reason not to read him and not to take him seriously. And you can tell that there's a certain kind of – a sinister image of him that has survived in the popular imagination. If you look at the epic rap battles of history, Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy, have you ever heard of this? Epic rap battles of history? It's a YouTube channel. uh, And there's a couple of guys who take historical personages and then have them do rap battles where they're like (laughs) dissing each other. And so there was one of their episodes was Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy. And the representatives of 
Western philosophy were Voltaire, Socrates, and Nietzsche. And they did come up with a pretty good line for Nietzsche, N-I-E-T-Z-S-C-H-E, and I'll end any motherfucker like my name in a spelling bee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, um, you know, they have actors portraying the different philosophers and the way Nietzsche is presented is this like tall, strapping beast in a 19th century suit with a huge walrus mustache, like screaming at the camera. And like he's supposed to be, you know, gangsta as fuck. Right. Right. (laughs) And I was like, you know, the funny thing is I was reading Ernst Newman's biography of Wagner and Richard Wagner German composer, Wagner and Nietzsche were for a while best friends and then famously fell out. And Nietzsche devoted many of his late works to trying to exorcise what he saw as the kind of malignant spirit of Wagnerism from German culture. Right. Decadence. Decadence, yes. But in Newman's biography, he points out how Nietzsche was a very gentle egg-headed sort of guy that the one funny detail that he was the sort of fellow that all of the women in Wagner's social circle felt very comfortable with because they knew he was never going to subject them to any impropriety. He had perfect manners, was very soft-spoken, um, unlike many guys in that circle, actually listened to what women had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. in other words, pretty much the 180-degree opposite of our image of him. And why is that? I mean, partly well, partly it's because of the t- writings. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there is something in his writings and in the essay we're discussing today, it's true as well. His persona in writing is a huge, powerful voice. You know, if he was a person projected into your room, he would be like this seven foot tall, muscle bound giant grabbing you by the lapels and holding you up off the ground like Darth Vader at the beginning of A New Hope, you know, with your, your heels dangling ineffectually in empty air. And he creates that through his writing. And so thinking about that persona And what aspects of his philosophy as well as his style contribute to that? That's something I find interesting. And the other thing, which is uh, related, you know, I find it impossible to read Nietzsche in general and this essay in particular without constantly asking, who's he talking about here? Like, I feel the need always at every point to be mapping the – philosophies, the psychologies, the characterological traits that he's describing onto contemporary archetypes. I never read him in a historicist way where I'm like, oh, well, he's talking about the young Hegelians of the blah, blah, blah decade. And, you know, even if that's true and um, there's any amount of scholarship that historicizes all of his references and some of them is low-hanging fruit. So obviously he's criticizing various Hegelian scholars because he names them. But You know, that to me is always – that's always the least of it. There's something in his writing that – to use a term that is associated with Louis Althusser, the French Marxist thinker, interpellation, not Mm -hmm. interpolation, but interpellation. Um, This is an idea like, you know, the example that Althusser gives is – you know, you're in the street just kind of minding your own business, thinking about whatever you're thinking about, and a cop stops you and like calls you. Sir, sir, you know, like you in the blue jacket or whatever. 
that feeling of being called out, like in that moment, who you are is galvanized or it's transformed by the act of being called. Right. Like you become in part the person who is being called by the policeman. Right. You become the almost the reverse of the seal, of, uh, the, the impress of state power. Right. Interpellation is a kind of transformation in you that happens when you are addressed in some direct way. And Nietzsche interpellates the fuck out of his readers. Yes. You know, when you read, you always feel like he is talking to you. And I believe that that is why, like, I always read his stuff looking for correspondences between whatever he's talking about, whatever his contemporary references are and the world that I personally live in. Exactly. This this kind of like, uh, you know, that that line from that Rilke sonnet that everybody quotes, you must change your life. Like there's, it always feels like there's a stern admonitory finger poking out at you from the page telling you, you must change your life. And I think that is part of what makes Nietzsche seem like that seven foot tall muscle bound giant. um, Because that voice that interpellates you, that calls you, is so powerful. You almost can't read him without this feeling of investment, that you're part of the drama somehow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. The thing about Nietzsche is that he talks in this essay at one point about the courage it takes and the gall it takes to become the just man who is going to judge. He says basically that judgment should be reserved only to the just man, and the just man is rare indeed. In fact, he's the rarest of creatures, and I'm assuming he would include woman in his man, but the just person is the person who gets to judge. And what he's doing in his writing is he's giving himself license to to embody what he calls the highest of virtues, justice. To me, Nietzsche is a moralist. His arguments against morality are moral arguments. He's not saying beyond good and evil towards nihilism. He's saying beyond good and evil in name of some revaluation of morals, right? So uh-huh. he's always concerned with, with the idea of a real, um, almost transcend, transcendent sent, uh, justice. Um, and, and in this essay, it's amply clear that he's writing in the name of of some future where justice might reign. He does, I don't think he believes that future will necessarily come about, but he's definitely writing in the name of some kind of moral ideal. And that's what gives his writings such force when you're reading them. Cause he's talking to you like, you must change your life is a moral statement. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah. must, ought, you know? And uh, it's funny because there are apparent contradictions in Nietzsche when he talks about, oughts being always kind of illusory and nonsensical, nothing must be one way or another. And yet he's saying, we must realize that musts don't exist. You know, like he's constantly reaffirming this moral message or this moral ideal, which I think that if you get rid of that, all you have is a a raving lunatic. To me, he only makes sense if I read him as someone writing from within, quote unquote, Christian tradition and trying to bring about or to occasion the birth of a new moral ideal, a moral ideal that would transcend the hypocrisy that has determined uh, the course of Western civilization thus far, you know, in terms of uh, of how it's not, it hasn't lived up to the ideals of the Greeks or to the ideals of Christianity. 
Um, in fact, those very ideals have been warped and twisted and distorted. Mm. Um, he writes very favorably about Buddha and Christ in Antichrist. Um, yeah. At one point he writes, there was only one Christian and he died on the cross. And, and, and these contradictions in Nietzsche are interesting. And you, I guess you, can, you always have to keep these in mind as you read him, as, as you try to make sense yeah. of him. Fortunately, this particular essay is quite clear. Um, and, and isn't, Un- unusually so. Yeah. And isn't resorting to the, the rhetorical tactics that he felt he needed to use later on to um, – compress his ideas into little gnomic utterances that could be easily digested or easily written. Um, There's a good book on Nietzsche by Alexander Niemas called Nietzsche, Life is Literature. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And the book is really about those contradictions because he he goes into quite a bit of detail about just how often Nietzsche seems to be contradicting himself or undoing even on the same page the thing that he just said. And Niemas has an argument that like for Nietzsche, the great philosophical vision is of flux and process. Exactly. And that that in itself cannot be enacted in any particular set of propositions, that language itself kind of butts up against the problem of realizing that which is uh, always fluid, always in motion. And so it is in the act of reading and negotiating his paradoxes and his contradictions that he is enacting that flux and process and we enact it in ourselves and yes, reading it. at least at least that's what i remember from, from no, no, reading that yeah book. that's what i got and it's that's that's brilliant he um at one point in this essay he's talking about a particular species of history we'll get to that called the monumental mode of history so in, in that context he describes something called he calls effects in themselves when you have a flux of becoming and you grab an ideal out of that flux, let's say you like you look at Caesar. So Caesar was just one man among millions in ancient Rome, but you turn him into a kind of archetype, a kind of monument. When you do that, you're pulling him outside of history. You're making Caesar and then you're making yourself supra-historical. And then this supra-historical idea of Caesar, which never actually existed in the world, nevertheless has causal power on you and on your world as an mm-hmm. idea, and that turns Caesar, the archetype Caesar, into what he calls an effect in itself. A good term for that would be something like a special effect, something that's yeah. added into a film after, but without which the film couldn't be what it is. So right. all of a sudden, it's like like the contradictions are part of the process by which Nietzsche creates an effect in you which is the real philosophy, which is what's actually going on, an impetus to become, an impetus to change, an impetus to to transform yourself. And that, to me, is I, I agree with you there. I think that that's really what Nietzsche is after, more than making a propositional statement stick. You know, that's not yeah. really what his yeah. priority is. So what's this essay about? Well, in the translation that I have, which is a Yale University Press volume, the translator is Gary Brown. Okay, my translator for the record is R.J. Hollingdale. So I've got the, uh, the Cambridge text there. 
uh, we will hope that uh, <laughs> that this episode doesn't degenerate into just an endless pedantic wrangle over the translation of the. Right. Should it be supra historical or super historical? Right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, what the fuck was I going to say? So. The title is translated here as History in the Service and Disservice of Life. And early on, Nietzsche says, you know, we need history for life. And we also are poisoned by history. History both serves and deserves life. And what life means, we can leave aside for now. But I'll start off a summary of what I take this essay to be about with a little autobiography, which is, you know, this is the closest thing to a a philosophical self-help manual for neurasthenic graduate students, as I have ever read. And that is certainly the spirit in which I first read it. I was a graduate student. I had been in graduate school for a couple of years. And, you know, there's something that Nietzsche describes in here. And he says early on, and I, I absolutely love this line, I have attempted to describe a feeling that has frequently tormented me. I take my revenge on it by making it public. And this is a feeling that tormented me, which is a feeling that all of the words that you're stuffing your head with, all of the ideas, all of the art, all of the stuff that you care about, like the reason you go to graduate school is because you love, in my case, I was in graduate school for musicology. So I, you know, I love music and you love reading about music. You love reading period. You love ideas and art and history and all that shit. But like Nietzsche says repeatedly, like if you do that too much, if you, if you consume, you eat all of these ideas, all of these words without hunger, without appetite, if they're not necessary for you, you'll get sick. It will make you sick. And the sickness is a kind of like spiritual sickness. You you become weaker. You become unable to act. You become cynical. Nothing matters much anymore. Everything is more or less of equivalent value Everything has been reduced to the quality of an illustration or an example of something. Uh, everything is instrumentalized within some scheme of knowledge that you're trying to pound into your skull so you can pass your qualifying exams or whatever. And that will make you ill. Mm-hmm. And I was beginning to kind of feel that illness. And I read that and I was feeling like – you know, I was sort of going through one of my depressive periods, and this is the only time I had a depressive episode that was healed by reading something. I remember there was this one afternoon, I just was lolling around in bed, and I started reading this essay, and I just read it all day. And I remember when I got to the end, that final bit, the beginning of the last, the tenth and final section of it, he says, remembering youth at this point, I cry out, land ho! Enough and more than enough of this passionate wandering journey on dark and alien seas. Landfall at last. No matter where it is, we must disembark. Even the poorest haven is better than being swept back into the infinity of hopeless skepticism. And I remember as I was reading that section, this huge thunderstorm burst over my head in the little apartment that I was living in. Oh, wow. and raged for a short time. And when it was done, you know how uh, the air 
sometimes feels like it's been scrubbed clean. It's practically sparkling right. after a violent storm has passed that, through. that ozone smell. Yeah. <clears throat> everything feels like the world has just been remade afresh. Yep. I finished reading this essay. I walked outside and that's what the world was like. It just felt like I'd read this essay and it allowed me to understand what was going on with me. And it made me realize that what I cared about ultimately was life and that what I wanted from my graduate education and ultimately from my academic career was for the ideas that I played with, the art that I studied, the things that I wrote, what I wanted that to do was to serve that life. And for me, just reading this essay was just like, it was like a declaration of independence. Mm -hmm. You know, it just had that feeling, that let freedom ring kind of quality to it. It was really important to me. One of the unfortunate things that happens with Nietzsche too is that he's often um, portrayed as a kind of like a thinker one likes in one's youth, uh, yeah. kind of like a, a Jim Morrison figure. Yeah. You, you kind of like, <laughs> you have a Nietzsche poster when you're 18 and then you grow out of it. I think that's just another way of neutering Nietzsche, just like calling him a proto-Nazi is another way of neutering Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche yeah. was as close to a prophet as a modern philosopher has ever gotten. Um, mm-hmm. maybe even a full-on prophet, and I mean that literally. I mean, some of the things he prophesied came to pass, including the total disaster of the Soviet Union and Nazism. But in this particular essay, he's also, and he's talking to you as an individual, as you just brilliantly um, described, but he's also dissecting the modern age in a very interesting way. I mean, he's talking about history as a modern phenomenon, essentially. That before modernity, we had the past, but we only have history as a discipline in the modern age. And the implications of the creation of this science of history are tremendous for people, uh, for people's cultures and individuals. Because he talks about the malady of history and he, he, he breaks it towards the end of the essay. He says quite plainly, he says, uh, excess of history has attacked life's plastic powers. It no longer knows how to employ the past as a nourishing food. So in other words, humans who are, according to Nietzsche, the only historical animal, they use the past. We have a historical consciousness, which allows us to use the past as a nourishing food to make our memory and our memory of memory, our ability to uh, transfer memories from one person to the next through language and writing and whatnot, mm-hmm. allows us to build some, build life into something, to create new life, to create a new form of life on earth. Yeah, but this, of course, is some, this is somewhat like what Alfred Krzybski called time binding. Right, exactly. But what happens in in modernity, according to Nietzsche, is that we develop the science of history, and that involves specific negative implications. One of the implications that it forces on us is that if you think you know what history is, you can only do that if you assume you know what humans are. So it, there's a humanism in the idea of, of historicism, which is a problem because we, according to Nietzsche, we don't know what humans are. We don't know what humans could become. But the minute you say, I'm a student of history, and this is what history is, you're basically putting yourself at the end of history, 
Whereas other cultures before were involved in mythic cycles, you're putting yourself at the end of history, and therefore you're putting yourself a little bit outside of history. So all of a sudden, you're not involved in the flows of becoming that constitutes the past and the present. You imagine yourself to be outside of it, and therefore you imagine yourself to be the judge of history. And that's one of the main critiques he levels at the uh, scholars of his time, is that they are not worthy of the judgments they make on the past. Um, yeah. And the, the cure for that for Nietzsche is a balance between historical consciousness and what he calls unhistorical consciousness or the untimely, which is the ability for humans to construct through a pure passionate engagement with life to cast a horizon around themselves so that the past doesn't control them anymore, so that they can create something new. It's like falling in love. Everything you thought you knew doesn't apply anymore. All your valuations are null. Everything becomes new again. This ability to leave history and come back into it, to kind of have this to and fro movement between historical consciousness and the untimely, which is the place of creation and passion and engagement, is key. And modernity for Nietzsche basically is a a way to stop people from accessing the untimely, from accessing that ahistorical crucible of creation that each of us needs to enter into in order to do anything worthwhile in life, including anything at all, any just deed, he says, any good deed requires that. Um, There's a passage I want to read early on. This is in section one. Uh, And this is where he's talking about the unhistorical. Actually, there's a couple of different terms. There's the historical, which is for the most part what he's criticizing. There's the unhistorical, which we're about to talk about. And then there's also the supra-historical or super-historical, depending on how you translate it. And I want to talk about that a little bit later because that's an interesting and somewhat – that's a concept that he does not spell out nearly as clearly as he does the unhistorical. And yet I feel like it's a key term. So Mm -hmm. I want to return to that. But for now, I want to think about the unhistorical. And so, you know, he he comes up with a famous image, or at least I've seen this image reproduced many, many times, you know, looking at cows, like looking at a herd before you. Aware of no yesterday, no today, it frolics about, feeds, sleeps, digests, and frolics again. From morning till night, and from day to day, tethered by its pleasures and aversions, pegged to the moment, and therefore neither sad nor satiated." This spectacle is hard on man, since he boasts of his superiority to animals, but looks with envy on their happiness. His desire is futile because he refuses to be like them. He may ask the animal, why do you just look at me instead of telling me about your happiness? The animal wants to to reply, because I always immediately forget what I wanted to say, but then it forgets even this answer and says nothing. Man is left to wonder. And, you know, there he is. Let's leave aside the question of animal psychology and whether animals really do cognize in the way that he attributes to them. And just assume that, as he says in a later passage, you know, there's a horizon that surrounds all organisms. And for non-human animals, that horizon must be closer to them, the horizon of like what everything they can see and cognize at one time. And for humans, that horizon is set back a ways, right? It can move, um, yeah. It can change. Yeah. And here he is imagining a kind of an ideal state where the horizon is right here. You are, li- as they say, living entirely in the moment, unable to 
formalize a response to a question because by the time you have thought it, you've already forgotten it. <laughs> um, you know, there's no ability to bind one second to the next. And without that ability to bind one moment to another, there's no memory, there's no structure of language, there's no nothing we recognize as cognition, right? But he's arguing that that the animal has something that we don't, which is a kind of happiness. And he wants to make the point that with the expansion of our horizon, we become aware of all of the conditions that bear upon any action. Uh, we can remember all of these things that have gone terribly wrong when somebody has ever tried to do anything. The more you know, the more you know all of the terrible things that can result from any action. And so on the, the facing page, he starts making the point that happiness requires this kind of forgetting, forgetting. this yeah. unhistorical quality that in order for us to do anything or to be happy for a moment, we have to have this animal-like uh, I mean, we are animals, so you know, there you go. But like, you have to embrace this quality of forgetting. And see, so he writes, in the smallest and in the greatest happiness, there is always one element which makes it happiness, the power to forget, or in learned language, the power to feel unhistorically while it lasts. The man who cannot pause upon the threshold of the moment, forgetting the entire past, the man who cannot pivot on a tiny point like a goddess of victory without dizziness or fear, will never know happiness and, even worse, will never do anything to make others happy. Right. Take the most extreme example, a man who totally lacks the power to forget, who is doomed to see becoming everywhere. Such a man no longer believes in his own being, no longer believes in himself. He sees everything disintegrating into turbulent particles and becomes lost in this flux of becoming. Like a true disciple of Heraclitus, he will end by scarcely daring to lift a finger. Forgetting is necessary to all activity, just as dark as well as light is necessary to all organisms. That's obviously true. I mean, you can think of endless examples of this. I remember when I was first writing songs as a teenager and my songs were horrible. And yet I somehow I just kept writing more terrible songs until they got better. And every time you, when you do this, when you're creating something, every time you start again, it feels like you have to forget uh, everything. Yeah. You have to come at it new again. You have to start over. Yeah. From, as but we talked happened. about that. We talked about this in the MC Richards episode. Right, exactly. Uh, Richards talks about these two students that she had, one of whom was an academic and who was unable to throw any pots until she was blindfolded because her eyes were her critical sense. She would look at what she made and nothing she made was good enough for her. She couldn't forget all the beautiful pots she'd seen, all of the ideals enough to just dwell in the moment and make something. Exactly. So for Nietzsche, the, the unhistorical, which is one variant on what elsewhere in this book he calls the untimely, uh, doesn't mean that you enter into some kind of uh, eternity. It means that you act in a way that counters or uh, refuses to subordinate itself to the past. You act against yeah. your time and uh, you act in the benefit of a time to come. So there's always this creative drive behind Nietzsche's ideas when it comes to how history can serve life. Like if you're just studying history for the, for the sake of gathering knowledge, if, you're, if your knowledge gathering isn't in the name of or in the interest of creating some kind of future, 
then you're allowing the past or knowledge to vampirize life as it is lived now. You approach what he would later call the state of, of decadence, which is the state of the ironic, cynical state of the modern age, where you just have a bunch of frumpy people uh, judging the past and creating nothing new, or people whose interiority can find no means of expression in the outside world, so that form and content don't match. So you have a super ugly, drab world filled with people who think they're the end product of the historical process, like they are the cutting edge of, of humanity, when in fact, they don't live up to the ideals of past cultures, let's say, that for their part, maintain a kind of connection to life and creation. Like for, for Nietzsche, one of the key things in Nietzsche is that, is that modern people have lost touch with life. There's something that has inserted itself between ourselves and ourselves, right? Like yeah. that, that we need to learn again how to transcend the uh, conceptual um, armature that we've all been, that's been like, like imposed on each of us in order to reconnect with what he often calls and with various meanings, instinct. You know, and the key thing for Nietzsche is discover your instinct. And that doesn't mean your animal instinct. It means some kind of inborn, soulful intuition that you uniquely represent. And that's, I think that's why his work is rightly described as self-help in that way, because he is yeah. trying to get you there. And, and his idea is that your history should serve that. Exactly. And that's a pretty, um, to use a, a word that everybody likes to use, a somewhat subversive idea. Because, you know, if you study history formally, like at college, of course the idea is that you want to get it right, that you want to do justice to the past, that you want to come up with a true picture of events. And professional historians have endlessly complicated the idea of history as it really was, but nevertheless – there is always some sense that your history should be veridical, that it's not responsive to how you feel. It's responsive to, you know, history, to stuff that actually happened. But Nietzsche is actually suggesting something else. At a certain point, like you study the past enough, you realize that there's no action that was ever taken without monstrous injustice. Right. Like there's no work of art that is um, uh, untainted by – cruelty um, that is unsplattered with blood. I mean, think about it, even just any civilization. Think of the the worldwide ongoing Treblinka of uh, animals in slaughterhouse conditions and factory farm conditions. Everything that we do, the, the literal fuel for our days, the fact that I'm talking to you right now uh, is owed to the fact that I've eaten in a way that supports a system that causes fantastic levels of cruelty, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, even if I was a vegan, this would be true. Even if you're, you say like, okay, I'm not going to eat animals. I'm not going to eat anything that is an animal product. You are nevertheless, by going to the grocery store, you're buying into a system that supports the enslavement and murder of animals on an almost unthinkable scale. And so you sometimes see people who become like obsessive about their food and like they – they can't stop perseverating about where the food comes from. And they spend time thinking about like, how can I live off the grid so that I'm just making my own food and going down that hippie path, right? And I'm not saying this in a disrespectful way because there's something noble uh, and even kind of beautiful about that. 
But then at the same time, you can also see how something like that would make you crazy because you're having to paddle so hard against a very strong current. You're having to work so hard to not be a part of this kind of systematic cruelty. And then once you're thinking about that, well, shit, that's just one of a, like an endless, enumerate list of cruelties that support everyday existence. Especially especially if you if you start to think historically and then think about the historical cruelties and abominations or that, yeah. that created the society that you depend on for your survival. Well, living uh, both in Canada, as you do, and in the United States, as I do, we are sitting on land, land that was like straight up stolen from First Nations people. Right. Like the literal ground we walk upon, uh, we walk upon it by virtue of historic acts of uh, theft. And murder and all the rest, right? And genocide. Yeah. And Nietzsche is fully aware of this and insists on making us aware of this. Mm -hmm. And yet you can see how somebody who is trying to avoid complicity in every form of cruelty will end by wishing simply never to have existed. Yes. And that's the danger. That's the great danger of the critical mode, because he has three modes of historical uh, right. sense. And that, that's because he, he's against that. He thinks yeah. that the whole point of what we were talking about earlier, the unhistorical and the act of forgetting, is to somehow transcend that condition. As, yeah. and, and as he says in The Birth of Tragedy, he writes, the world is only justified aesthetically. I mean, one interpretation of that is to mean that any type of aesthetic creation, which would include for Nietzsche beautiful works of historical creation, like beautiful societies, beautiful cities, beautiful books, beautiful the creation of beauty in the world is the only redemption we get. It's the only right. thing that can justify the cruelty that conditions yeah. all historical existence. And so for him, the business of history is to some extent aesthetic. Oh, yeah, that we need we yeah. need a history that is beautiful, and we need a history that makes life beautiful and meaningful. Well, so much for that idea that the measure of history is its veridical character. You are actually saying in order for history to do good for human beings, it has to in some way falsify the true cruelty of existence. Well, and, and that's what, yeah. and that's what I think is sort of subversive is that he's insisting, like, in order even to do history, you have to defy history. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that he he, he often talks about the the essential character of illusions, Nietzsche. Right? He's like, we yeah. need illusions. So, in other words, at some points, it seems like what he's saying is that we need to turn our history into a myth into a kind of mythology that fuel mm -hmm. that that yes. drives us in the present and and encourages us and helps us create a future. And his use of the word illusion is problematic I find because I I having read a lot of Nietzsche my sense is that what he means by illusion is exactly what we mean when we talk about the virtual. You don't have the world without illusions for Nietzsche. It's yeah. just as illusory to reduce history to pure cruelty and chaos as it is to lift it up to this this beautiful kind of like uh, idyllic um, story of progress and wonderfulness, like Stephen right. Pinker does. So they're both fall. There's no. It's it's more like there is no. Um, 
knowable final truth for Nietzsche. So every utterance of a culture or a person involves some kind of artifice, some kind of creation. And so Mm -hmm. we need to create a history that affirms uh, reality, but at the same time that gives us a will to live. Because if we if we yeah. lose that will to live, then we fall into nihilism. And then if you think the world was cruel before, well, you just wait till we all collectively go nihilistic. You know, yeah. it's going to yeah. get a lot crueler. So yeah, it, it, just to break it down, because I, I think that what you were touching on there was a very interesting part of what he's writing about, which is the critical mode of of. Um, yeah, I kind of jumped ahead. So we've alluded to there being three kind of modes of history, right. all of which he believes are capable of serving human life. And I, I was just talking about the critical mode, which is where you go into ha- the past with the, the sternest aspect, you know, the you aspect of the judge. Yeah. Yeah, and you will always find it guilty. Right. And he points out there's some people who have this, like, need, people who have been wounded by history. We might think of African Americans, for example. You know, in African American studies is a really important field, subfield of American history because it is American history from the critical vantage point, the vantage point of slaves and the descendants of slaves. Exactly, yeah. And and this, I think Nietzsche would look at as being like, yes, this is critical history and it is necessary. Yes. And, and, but then it's not the only one. There's two other modes. Right. There's the monumental and the antiquarian. It's, it's actually really interesting because I never thought of this before I read this essay. Um, so the monumental mode of historical consciousness is when you take history and you look at it as a story from which you can get ideals and examples, exemplars and ideals. So mm-hmm. th- that's the old classic way of looking at history. Like the Greeks were this pinnacle, this apogee of civilization. Right. And uh, Achilles or, you know, a more historical figure like uh, Pericles or whatever. These are the, the figures, the archetypes that we should embody now. And it's possible to revive the, the glory of ancient Athens in 19th century Germany if you believe it's possible. Like basically, right. if you believe in it, you can recreate this grandeur. And in the United States, it would be someone like Thomas Jefferson, exactly. or George Washington. Or, or Abraham be, Lincoln later on. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You, that, and that's the way you see history as a series of, of epic kind of stories, which instantiate archetypes that can become active again if you can embody them or if your people, your group can embody them. And actually, the monumental uh, mode is very interesting because he works out, he sketches out a theory of the event here, which is really interesting. Um, but we can maybe get that get to that later. The second mode, the antiquarian, that's the mode where the person who practices this mode of history actually becomes the past. Like It's like um, the people who want to preserve the past because the past is what constitutes the present. These are, this is our heritage. These are our roots. We need to remember. And that's an well, essential- like I, think, I think of things like uh, those little municipal museums that you find dotted around. Right. Like, you know, you go to Ajax, Ontario. I don't know if there's actually an Ajax museum, but there probably is one. Like some little – and, you know, the people who built that museum to preserve the history of that little region, which may or may not be an important region of the world, but it's important to the people who live there. They are that – you know, that that little part of the world is who they are. And by engaging with this history, by putting up, you know, a little museum, a little municipal museum or whatever, they are – nourishing part of themselves, their roots. I, I remember when I was living in Toronto, Leslie and I were looking for an apartment when we she was pregnant with Delphine. 
Uh, and <laughs> we visited this one house. This guy was renting a floor in his house. It was a nice Victorian house um, just south of U of T in Toronto. And he just gave us a tour of the house and then gave us a, a basically a history lesson on the house, the street, that neighborhood of Toronto, the city of Toronto. This guy was just deeply immersed in the yeah. history of the place. And he was kind of a, an extreme version of a mode of thinking that's present in many people, which is that one needs to know where one comes from. And that's important. And Nietzsche agrees, as long as that serves life, that's important. The danger is when you stop being able to discern value in the past and everything becomes valuable because it's from the past. And then you're right. unable to make a judgment. And that's where the critical mode comes in. And it's able to discern what is good and what from what is bad in, in history. Now, yeah. as a way to illustrate, I just thought of this as a kind of um, example to illustrate these three modes and how they work. I was thinking about those um, controversial monuments uh, that people like, want to tear down. Oh, like the Confederate. Right. Uh, the, like various Confederate um, heroes uh, like or whatever. Military, military heroes or whatever. Yeah. Right. Let's take that. Or maybe that's that's pretty controversial. Um, but yeah, let's, let's use that as an example. So you have a Confederate general who's got the statue in some small town in the U.S. And then you have mm -hmm. arguments for, for, make, for preserving the monument and you have arguments for tearing it down. And the arguments for tearing it down are all from the critical mode. They're saying this person exemplifies or represents or symbolizes the injustice of the past. And by, maintain, by keeping the statue there, not only do we celebrate the injustices of the past, but we're condoning the injustices of the present and the injustices of the future. This is a basically right. a monument to the injustice of at least this particular aspect of history. The monumentalists would say, well, no, this person represents an ideal which transcends the flaws of the person that embodies the ideal. So, mm. yeah, it's too bad that this guy was pro-slavery, but he was the underdog. He was the rebel. He was the hero. He was the one who stood up to tyranny. And those values, those ideals are more important, uh, ultimately speaking, are more important than his sins uh, and the sins right. of his time, which, after all, just belong to his time. So he transcended his time, therefore he transcended the sins of his time. The people who tend to argue in this line probably don't argue it with using these words, but I think that's kind of what they're, yeah. th they're feeling. Yeah. And then the antiquarian argument, which you hear all the time. I mean, there was just a controversy here in Canada about Ryerson University and they wanted to change the name of the, of the university because Ryerson uh, was one of the architects of the residential school system where a mm. lot of First Nation people were sent, I mean, a lot, like... Hundreds of thousands were sent uh, in the 20th century. Um, and the argument was put forward. It's like, well, yeah, Ryerson wasn't perfect. He was a, a man of his time. And it's, it's not that he represents some kind of great ideal. It's that we can't erase the past. When you erase the past, there's no, once you start doing that, there's no knowing where you'll end up. You have to just, we have to just live with the fact that we named this university after this person. And we need to be aware. We need to make people conscious that this person had deep flaws or did some really questionable things. But nonetheless, if you start to erase and edit uh, the architecture of your city or your memories of the past in order to conform to some ideal of the present, it's a, just a dangerous road to embark on. That would be an antiquarian mm -hmm. way of looking at it. And then, of course, yeah. there's the critical ones or the ones who just can't get over the injustices that this particular monument tacitly condones. Right. So you can see these three ways of approaching the past. And I think that Nietzsche was right on and, and, and I couldn't think of a fourth, right? So. Yeah. yeah. And you can see how it plays out also in 
less political realms. So I'm just thinking of the discipline that I'm that I'm in, in music history. You see those three uh, flavors of history playing out there too. The monumental or exemplary history, as it's translated in my book, uh, being the sort of like what my colleague Dan Malamed likes to call the Beethoven, what a guy, sort of genre of, uh, of scholarship, where you're holding up great figures of music as culture heroes, models for maybe for emulation on some level, but they, they give us an, a life-giving idea in the present of what it is to be you know, a musician, of what artistic accomplishment is, uh, what we can accomplish, regardless of our area of endeavor. Right. Uh, the antiquarian being, you know, especially people who are involved in early music performance practice, people who are really into recreating how music would have been performed on original instruments. I just wrote a thing for the Patreon channel, for the readers tier about tuning in Bach's well-tempered clavier, which I realize sounds boring, but it gets occulty. It's great. So, so it's cool. Um, and, uh, it's you conspiracy know, theory. It's conspiracy theory. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Uh, So something like that, like we care a great deal about how Bach tuned his harpsichords because there's a sense that that who we are in the present is is best informed by like the loving recreation of the past. Uh, And then the critical side, which is going to be highly critical of those other two modes. And so you don't see much of the monumental mode in music scholarship anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just considered very uncool. It gets called great man history, which it is. I mean, it is, it tends to be the focus on great men or great women, but where we are now is with like some sort of grudging tolerance of antiquarian history. Well, that's the early music Institute, very little tolerance of the monumental history and an almost exclusive focus on the critical mode. Right. And critical and that's, that's musicology is and critical musicology is sort of where it's at these days, and that's just not musicology. That's really the humanities in general. And so, something I said at the beginning: it's impossible to read Nietzsche without constantly mapping what he's saying onto your own circumstances. I'm reading this, and I'm just sort of like, what he's writing could not be more relevant to the present day. He would he would condemn that that particular um, situation because for Nietzsche, all three modes have their value and their place. And he thinks he would attribute a lot of importance to the monumental mode in any discipline and also to the critical mode. The problem is that the critical mode can get out of hand and it gets out of hand because of a super abundance or a bloatedness of history. When we're too bloated with history or when the historical sense is too strong in us, he says, we start to imagine that we're not in it. We start to imagine ourselves as latecomers or epigones, he says. Yeah. We start to imagine ourselves as being at the end of history. Therefore, we become entitled to judge history. We don't see ourselves as being part of it. So the real critical move that Nietzsche validates in his essay is the move where the critic realizes that to live is an injustice. And that applies yeah. to the present, and it applies to the future, and it applies to the past. The problem with uh, our society, and I think the problems have been exacerbated since Nietzsche's time rather than solved, is that we are now even more ahistorical, not unhistorical, but ahistorical than we were then. Um, The world wars destroyed 
what was left of the old regime of culture and allowed for the creation of essentially what in my book I call the spectral society, and that's putting it a little bit dramatically maybe, but a society of that we've talked about, we talk about it in Grambosia and other places, a society that's built on simulacrum, on images, on the consumption of images. And these images are hyper-historical. Um, I mean, in a sense, you could say capitalism or hyper, the hyper-capitalism that's been in place since the end of the Second World War, you could say it's ahistorical. It pretends it lives in a no-time but at the same time, it has a hyper-historical consciousness where sort of like look at Disneyland and Hollywood movies. Everything's constantly referencing the past, but the past is always unfolding through media outside of us. And we live somehow in this bubble that's beyond it. And that's what entitles us to criticize things. And it's what condemns ultimately, I think it's what one of the factors that leads to the condemnation of any type of monumental approach, which would propose that Beethoven was actually a great person and that right. his greatness is actually within our reach again. Because we're like, the way I put it in my notes is, um, the way I wrote it for myself was, since history is the locus of all becoming as life, we have become like the undead. Um, and mm. the undead is you're neither dead nor living. You're a spectator. You're a specter. Yeah. And you're, uh, he calls us one point, he's like, we've become strolling spectators of history. Um, and that's what allows strolling, uh, strolling specters, strolling specters. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. And that's what gives us license to judge without judging ourselves. And I think that the first requirement to be the just man in Nietzsche's think, thinking is that the, the judge always knows that in judging the other, he is, he or she is also judging themselves yeah. um, and judging existence. And therefore that no judgment can be final. No judgment can be uttered from some transcendent order, which absolves the judge from judgment. And that's the problem with a lot of the critical, uh, the critical thinking that's going on today is that it seems mm -hmm. to um, extract itself from the flux of things. There's also a really sharp insight that Nietzsche gives us at the end of the second uh, text section, uh, where he talks about how each of these three kinds of history is valid for a specific kind of person, a specific kind of use, a specific setting, but becomes destructive when transplanted to some other setting. And so this is what he writes. Each of the three kinds of history is valid only in its own soil and its own climate. In any other soil, it becomes a ravenous weed. If the man who wants to create any great thing has any need of the past, then he will take possession of it by means of exemplary or monumental history. Those men, on the other hand, who want to remain firmly within the bounds of hoary and venerable custom, will cherish the past as antiquarians. And only the man who is oppressed by a present need, the man who wants at any cost to rid himself of a burden, needs critical history, that is, history which judges and condemns. If these historical growths are carelessly transplanted, great damage is done. The critic without need, the antiquarian without reverence, and the authority on greatness with no capacity to be great are such growths, plants that have run wild and, torn from their nurturing soil, have therefore degenerated into weeds. And I think that the the lampooning of great man history comes very readily to us, partly because we've seen so many examples in the recent past of the authority on greatness with no capacity to be great. Right. 
And likewise, you know, the antiquarian without reverence, somebody who is just a sort of a cynical manipulator of things, like just, um, like just a, you know. Oh, well, I, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Maybe that's a bit tangential, but the way that the right wing uses uh, traditional values in order to push a kind of corporate consumerism on everyone, yeah. I find that that's a perfect example of this false antiquarian. Actually, yes, you're yeah. right. You're absolutely right. But then his his line, the critic without need, that says a lot, yeah. you know, <laughs> Because there's a lot of critics without need, which isn't to say, I mean, we all have needs, right? All of us have irritations and uh, hungers and discontents. Desires, uh, yeah. Desires. I mean, you know, all of us, to some extent, need each of these three things as in our our metabolizing of history or metabolizing the past. But – when you are subjected to an academic professional system that professionalizes one mode or the other, you are necessarily going to be performing that act of transplanting these these growths from their native soil right. that Nietzsche describes. Uh, when criticism becomes the only respectable mode of historicism, as it is really right now in the academy, then – it becomes one size fits all. Then it becomes a box that you're checking off on a list of things to do for your professional development. And it's no longer responding to that inner need. It's just some shit that you've learned how to do. So you perform critical moves that you've learned in school. And this is where you end up with this kind of like BuzzFeed takes criticism where you just see this kind of empty, superficial recycling of the categories of criticism without real engagement. Yeah, right now, that is just a plague. But, you know, nothing gets worse forever. And at a certain point, that's just going to blow over. The people are going to get into some other shit. But you can see how regardless of the specifics of the time that you live in, these kind of structures that he's describing, these are deep structures of modernity. This is just how modernity works. So, you know, the wheel could turn and we could end up in 50 years and suddenly antiquarianism is the ground tone of academia or exemplary or monumental history is the ground tone of academia. Who the right. hell knows? I'm, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Right. But no matter what happens, you know that academia is going to fuck it up because whatever <laughs> it is, it's just going to end up becoming compulsory and people are going to be acting on these historical impulses, not out of need, but simply as a kind of conditioned response. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I think you're right there. And I'm wondering, what is it about academia that will fuck it up? And I think now I'm remembering Foucault, the science of man, right? Like the idea that humanity becomes an object of knowledge in modernity, right? That's mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah. I think that's at the root of Nietzsche's critique. It's that the minute I decide I know what humans are, I think I know what you are. I yeah. know what Janet is. I know what you know, so-and-so is. I can tell I know what people are. And I've made them an object of, of my cognitive project, which is to know things. I've made humans one of the things I can know. That, to Nietzsche, is the great sin. Because, uh, as he says in Zarathustra, Nietzsche, man is but a bridge uh, we don't know what we might become. And um, this type of scientific thinking, so using the word science in the German sense. Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft, right. Um, 
using scientific thinking, I'm turning becomings into beings and knowable beings at that. And I'm making it that much harder for people who inherit this way of thinking to individuate, to become something new, to create anything yeah. new. Uh, everything yeah. becomes a, uh, a variation on the old. Nothing yeah. absolutely new can occur. And uh, he, when he talks about the oversaturation of an age with history, he lists five uh, consequences of that. And one of those uh, is precisely that it leads to an age that imagines that it possesses the rarest of virtues, justice, to a greater degree than any other age. And that's because such an age has decided that they are the observers of the human and the human can be known. And therefore, there's a barrier uh, and between us and any further becoming, any further engagement with, with, with history, with time. So this is in the last section. Uh, section 10 of this essay. And he says that basically there's two ways that you can heal yourself of the sickness of uh, an excess of historical awareness. And he says the antidotes to history are the unhistorical and the suprahistorical. Now, we've talked a bit about the unhistorical, the forgetting, that forgetting that needs to be a part of every successful action. That needs to be a part of, indeed, just sustaining life because, you know, as I said, that a kind of real insomnia of historical awareness leads ineluctably to the conclusion that it is better never to have existed, which is, of course, the antinatalist position, which is fashionable in some quarters. And clearly, that's the end that Nietzsche very much wants us to avoid. But the other, the other of his antidotes is the supra-historical and he's much vaguer about what that means. In this passage, in the end of the essay, he writes, by the term unhistorical, I mean man's skill and power to forget, his ability to seclude himself within a limited horizon. By suprahistorical, I mean those forces which direct our eyes away from becoming and toward that which gives existence its eternal and unchanging character toward art and religion. Right. That's an interesting line to me. First of all, because as you pointed out, he's actually saying something positive about religion. Yeah. And, and, and yokes art and religion together. And we know that he's very pro-art. Didn't know that he was pro-religion. But he sees art and religion as complementary parts of this supra-historical faculty, which is leading away from a contemplation of capital B becoming. And this is his grudge with Hegel, the focus on becoming rather than being. But he wants to think about that point at which everything has already happened. Everything already exists in a kind of ideal relationship to everything else, that that's the standpoint of the supra-historical. Yeah. Now, he doesn't talk too much about that, but I find this super interesting. Um, he talks about it in the context of the monumental, I believe. Yeah, early, early on. on. Early on, where he's talking about the – and that's, that goes to what I was saying about the – but I, I mentioned the event earlier. Um, so I have, a, I have a, the earlier passage at sure, hand. Go ahead. You, 
So he says, if in many cases a man were capable of sensing and savoring the unhistorical atmosphere in which every great historical event begins, he's talking about like, say, you know, Julius Caesar, you know, has to kind of do his thing in a, a certain spirit of forgetting and not being over nice about, for example, all the Druids that he murdered. Or, yeah, or crossing um, the Rubicon, which is the big event, right? The Right, the, right. The point of no return, yeah. So that's what he means when he talks about the unhistorical atmosphere in which every great historical event begins. So if people were capable of sensing and savoring that, then perhaps such people, quote, as a knowing being might be able to elevate himself to a supra-historical vantage point a vantage point that Niebuhr once described as a possible result of historical reflection. I'm going to skip over the quote from Niebuhr, but um, he says this vantage point described by Niebuhr would be called super historical because those who attain to it would no longer feel tempted to go on living or taking part in history because they would have recognized that the one condition for all events is the blindness and injustice in the soul of the man of action. And later, just a, like a paragraph later, he says, it is the no of the superhistorical man who sees no redemption in process for whom instead the world is complete, fully consummated at every moment. And again, that seems to be this view of the eternal. What do you think right. is going on there, dude? Well, I, I think that's it. I think it's exactly it. It's a view of the eternal. Um, and, you know, in some ways, some of what he's saying that is is causing me to question my interpretation of the supra-historical. The way I understood it uh, on this reading was that the supra-historical is the moment where you perceive the archetype, so to speak, Mm-hmm. in a historical event and therefore see eternity acting in time. So, mm. and um, like later on in that section, he's talking about the event, but before that, I want to, yeah, I just want to say, it's something like the imaginal. So mm. in, in a sense, yeah. I think what it allows, and I think we here we have different parts of what will develop into something more coherent later on in Nietzsche's work in his later works. It's that, uh, in Zarathustra, he writes about the importance of levity. Zarathustra is in a, is in a, a state of levity. He's light. He, he is light upon the earth. And what he means by that is because he sees the eternal, he doesn't take the various instances of hard, tragic becoming seriously. He doesn't have what Nietzsche calls, to contrast that, the spirit of gravity or the spirit of vengeance. He's able to dance upon the surface of the earth and therefore he's able to achieve great things because he has realized he's in touch with the eternal that is expressed through the events of history. And what's interesting is how this eternal is expressed in Nietzsche. Nietzsche is not obviously not a Platonist, so he doesn't think the eternal pre-exists the historical. Rather, the eternal is precisely what he calls the untimely, that which reveals itself in time and yet exceeds or transcends time. So yeah. when he's describing that, he says, monumental history uh, will always have to deal in approximations and generalities in making what is dissimilar look similar. It will always have to diminish the differences of motive and instigations so as to exhibit the effectus monumentally. That is to say, as something exemplary and worthy of imitation at the expense of the causae, the causes, right? So that since it as far as possible ignores causes, one might 
with only slight exaggeration, call it a collection of effects in themselves, of events which will produce an effect upon all future ages. That which is celebrated at popular festivals, at religious or military anniversaries, is really just an effect in itself. It is this which will not let the ambitious sleep, which the brave wear over their hearts like an amulet, but it is not the truly historical connexus of cause and effect, which, fully understood, would only demonstrate that the dice game of chance and the future can never again produce anything exactly similar to what it produced in the past. So the eternity, the, the, untime, the, the forgetting allows us to connect with this imaginal event, which is, for Nietzsche, in this context, seems to be just purely imaginary, but the hyperstition that we create out of this forgetting out of this connection has an effect on the future. And that's how we connect with the eternal in Nietzsche's um, kind of theory of history. And it's a result of the forgetting. Like in the passage you read, he seems to be saying that in that moment of forgetting, some creation becomes possible. And that creation then expresses itself super historically, possibly. That's, at least that's mm-hmm. the first part of what you read. And then he muddles it with the Niebuhr stuff. But, yeah. um, but that's how I understood the supra-historical. At least that's how I, I think that would make sense for me anyways. Yeah. 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 Well, he does say somewhere else that somebody who entered supra-historical awareness would be less apt to take history quite so seriously. Exactly. And so clearly he's thinking about this as a perspective in which history is still history. It still exists. We're still looking to the past and seeing the record of the past as something that's, you know, real, like mm-hmm. it refers to real things that actually happened. It's not some kind of total nihilism where you say, like, nothing is true, man. No. Um, but at the same time, it's a way of remaining almost in two worlds at once, mm-hmm. in the world of the historical, but also, but almost like a, you know, like a water bug skimming on top of the surface. Like, you don't break the surface tension. You don't get wet. You, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I've used that metaphor once before in this show. It, it's um, something that, that in uh, James Carr's uh, Finite and Infinite Games, it's what Carr's is getting at with the idea of the infinite game, which is that what is work in the finite game, what, what feels like toil and hard becomes light and playful uh, once you have realized that history is history and that, you yeah. know, it, the, the, the show must go on. That's the way it is. Yeah. So you can yeah. engage historically with your world. You can engage with your society. You can create a future in a spirit of levity, um, in a spirit of playfulness, which yeah. I think ultimately is exactly what Nietzsche was getting at with the idea of the Ubermensch. The Ubermensch is a mm. playful spirit, not a, a, not a vengeful or resentful spirit. But a spirit. That's of play. really interesting. Well, I mean, this reminds me of a, a line that I think I might have quoted before on the show: "Seriousness is stupidity sent to college." <laughs> no, I've never heard that one. Oh, okay. I think P.J. O'Rourke came up with that. Right. Um, you know, this is an idea that I sometimes, when I talk about Nietzsche, and particularly in my undergraduate music history class that I teach, I, I teach a little passage from one of. Uh, Nietzsche's Wagner writings, where he's launching upon this devastating critique of Wagner. And it's the bit where he says, il faut méditerraniser la musique, you know, one must mediterraneanize music. And he's saying that, you know, the the sort of the heavy fogs and mists of Wagner's world, the 
uh, intense seriousness where everything is about redemption and whatnot. He's just sort of like, to that, he counterposes Carmen by Bizet. Mm -hmm. And he says, this music makes me healthy again. And he says, like, this is what music needs. It needs more of the Mediterranean, more of a sunburnt, fragrant, you know, the Mediterranean of the classicist memories. Worth remembering that Nietzsche was a classicist. That's how he started his career, that the pagan world of Greece, of, of Homer's Greece, is a world intensely alive, I think, in his imagination, as a world of light and color, of vivid, violent action and hilarity, uh, cruelty and tragedy and farce. But also generosity and joy. Right? Yeah. And, right. and I think this for him is just sort of like this is, I think when he says, il faut mediterraniser la musique, that, I think that's what he is getting at. And he's sort of saying a little bit like, you know, Wagner's seriousness is a kind of stupidity. Yeah. Um, and the the seriousness of a kind of univocal or like a monocular view, uh, a non-stereoscopic view of history, is just, it's a kind of stupidity that there's a kind of wisdom in, as you say, levity, in humor, in being able to recognize that the same things that make you laugh make you cry – in being able to inhabit the perspective from which that thing makes you laugh and it makes you cry at the same time, that you can dance upon those perspectives without really digging into one or the other. And this is one reason why I think like really great stand-up comedy can be an art. Yeah. And can be deadly serious. It's yeah. Richard, like Richard, <laughs> Richard Pryor's stand-up, for example, can be serious as a heart attack. And yet it's funny as shit. And it's not serious at all. It's both. It's this bothness that I think is really key to that super historical sense. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.